This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. David, before we start our podcast, do you know what Feedspot is? Well, I didn't know until I read an email we'd received about Feedspot, which goes about discovering and ranking popular blogs and podcasts like ours. And do you know what they ranked us as? Tell me, Jen. Absolutely. Well, we ranked one of the top 35 in Australia. So we better stop talking and let you listen. Get on with the show. Thanks, Jan. When you first moved away from your family home, where did you live? Was it a share house with cleaning rosters on the fridge and impromptu parties? Friends and Dark Shapes is the debut novel by Kavita Bedford. Welcome, Kavita. Hi, Jan. Thanks so much for having me. Well, your novel starts with three looking for a housemate. Who are these three? So there's the protagonist uh, who is looking one year after her father has passed away and she is with two other friends. From One is from her youth and one is someone that she knows who is a friend of a friend and eventually they go through various interviews to find housemates, which is something that I think many people who are in their 20s and 30s have experienced and eventually settle on someone, as they say, another friend of a friend, because that's how you get anything in this city. What are some of the things that they do in this share house together? So I was really interested in, well, I guess the fact that I've lived in share houses for way longer than I wanted to. But, you know, a lot of the things are to do with that day-to-day fabric of life that I also found quite poetic in a lot of ways. So things like how do you find a shelf in a fridge to call your own? Uh, How do you buy toilet paper in a way that everyone is chipping in? Um, And how do you come up with these kind of rules for a simulation of a family, really? But something that this new house sharers are doing is employing a cleaner. Now, that led to a lot of discussion about the ethics. Yeah, I guess a lot of the aspects I wanted to talk about in ways that were sort of less obvious were to do with class dimensions as well. As you know, much of this book actually goes into the themes of gentrification. And I think there's this huge disparity at the moment between, on the one hand, a generation that can't afford to buy a home or live in a city like Sydney and, you know, and a scrimping and saving and doing a set of casual jobs. And then on the other hand, are having conversations where they can employ a cleanup to Mm. do their tasks. And I sort of didn't want to be judgmental about anyone in the book because I think this is an issue that is affecting all of us in different ways and many of us are implicit in the ways that we are sort of contributing to these distinctions with class. But I thought that using something like a share house as a vehicle Mm -hmm. to discuss some of these sort of more subtler um, inferences of, yeah, how class fits into sort of day-to-day decision-making. They have the share house in Redfern and maybe you can describe Redfern a little for us Melbourneites. Yeah, of course. Uh, So Redfern has this amazing history where uh, Indigenous communities were moved from Bondi and from other areas and placed into housing commission spaces in Redfern, along with other social housing that has been set up in the area. Uh, After kind of civil war, a lot of Lebanese and a lot of immigrants also moved to that area. And then you have in recent years, the kind of middle class affluent young lawyers, creatives, and but also people who have, you know, steady jobs and families 
now moving into that and with that has caused displacement of the Indigenous communities as well as people who were relying on a lot of the social housing in that area. So I kind of wanted to choose that area for a variety of reasons but that kind of complex background to it already was feeding into so much of what I wanted to talk about. And you've also made these four people within the house all of different ethnic backgrounds too. Yeah, and, you know, I think that was something that was very, uh, well, obviously very conscious, but I think that there were a lot of aspects to that decision. One was wanting to talk about sort of second-generation migrant because there is this very different social reality occurring as well. They're not the kids that are looking to their mother country or have had some experience even necessarily in other countries, and they're people who are contributing to a lot of these forms of gentrification and forms of sort of social class mobility. But at the same time, a lot of these people who have families that know what it feels like to be displaced. Look, they all want to make something of their lives. And I'm quoting here from uh, Kavita Bedford's Friends at Dark Shapes. They want more than renting and the casual work contracts and the Tinder one-night stands. My housemates and I want to get on with our lives and build something more lasting. We are all turning 30 and things don't look like we imagined they would. So what are these four doing? Well, all of them are working kind of casual jobs or they're working in areas that they don't necessarily sort of have a connection with. So much of what this book is trying to explore as well is the idea of what is a home. So in many ways, they're trying to create a kind of home arc within this share house. But I wanted that to also sit alongside so many of the inhabitants of the city. And as you know, the city makes up such a huge part of the character in the book. And a lot of it's about strangers and sort of connections with Uber drivers and cafe workers and baristas and all these people that make up the social fabric of our day-to-day life. And I wanted these four who were in a share house to be sort of questioning their ideas of a home and what makes a home alongside so many of these strangers and inhabitants who are also maybe have come from a place where they have been, you know, moved away from their home, a lot of migrants, uh, dispossessed people, or people who are, again, just middle class and searching for a way to fit in. And I wanted to use them as a way, again, to explore so many of these forms of disconnection, of loneliness, and this kind of search and what does it mean in a country like Australia to actually be in kind of borrowed land and to be searching for homes. There's Sammy, one of the, uh, is a lawyer who wants to be a poet. Tessa can't quite make it as an actress nor can Bowerbird as a musician. And Paul, he's a night carer at a disability hostel and daytime freelance photographer. What about our narrator's job? What does she do? So the narrator at the time is working part-time as a sort of freelance journalist. And she's also meets up with Paul, who's a photographer, to try and stitch together stories about the city. Mm. And through that, she comes and meets a lot of people such as a young woman who's working in a hijab fashion store, gentleman from Lebanon who has been in the area for a long time and is a cobbler. And she sort of seeks out people who have very different stories and tales of the city 
and tries to weave them into her own navigation of what is it that we're searching for. And I think so much of the book as well is about temporariness and temporality as well. So a lot of what she and her housemates and her job is also doing is talking to people who, you know, what is this form of impermanence and and how do we put in roots? Another quote. Lately, I've been asking strangers about their neighbourhoods. I'm not sure if it is for work anymore or if it just gives me reason to talk to strangers. And a bit further on, I can pretend to be someone else with strangers. So we know our narrator tells about how people can tell carefully crafted personal stories, but it's her own story she tells through this book and it's one of grief. I'm going to ask Kavita Bedford to read from Friend in Dark Shapes. This is page 60 and it just sums it up beautifully. It's her father she's grieving for. Grief oozes from the pores and radiates outwards so people catch the scent on you. People swerve to avoid you on the footpaths. They look for escape routes at parties. Strangers' eyes dart nervously when you speak, unclear of exactly what it is, but scared it is contagious. Grief is invisible. It is an ice-cold sliver of dread that wakes you up every morning, which no amount of clothes can warm up. It's like a kid's game of catch your shadow, a flicker of something, trying to capture it and pull it back into yourself. Recognition, that is me. But the more you chase yourself, the harder you can be to grasp. Grief catches me at unsuspecting moments and times, on this street, in that shop, in a turn of phrase, in this memory. It seeps into the grooves and cracks of a place. It doesn't obey a linear arc. It ducks and weaves. It dwells in the past. And as time moves forward, I find myself seeking refuge and solace, escaping into memories of growing up when the city felt familiar, like a friend, instead of this changing landscape with its new demands. Mm, Yes, yes. Another quote from uh, Kavita Bedford is about this, this grief with her father's death. And it's, Cut the umbilical cord is what they say when a child is overly connected to their mother. But there is no piece of flesh that connects a father and daughter. It's from page 185. Well, what are some of the things the father and this daughter did together? Uh, So the father and daughter relationship is one I really wanted to explore and a relationship that is a nurturing, healthy, loving and one where the father very much has taught the daughter how to grow up. The city in so many ways is also the father's city. Uh, And they do one-on-one dinners with each other. They talk about what they read together. Growing up, he teaches her very much how to be interested in stories and eventually writing itself. And I think one of the things that, you know, I really noticed when I was researching and reading themes around this book were just how few father and daughter relationship stories Mm. kind of more positive nature there really are the grief where does her hospital grief therapist tell her to put her dark shapes so the hospital therapist tells her to start well she tells her initially to put it into a journal 
that was sort of how she ends up sort of writing and, and coming to terms with a lot of these aspects. And it sort of harks back in the book as well to something that she talks about with her father, about how and where her father used to put his dark shapes, which she calls his sea creature days. And that was very much about those kind of subterranean, dark, uneasy moments and and thoughts that we all have that we don't necessarily know how to speak aloud in our society. And that was something, again, and where obviously the dark shapes from the title comes was I was very interested in what are, what we are allowed to say and what we don't say in our society. The constant demand for stories. This is another quote. Is there a place in our world for the delicate, the quiet, the contradictory, the messy part of being. And I think that's what you've really done with this book, isn't it, Kavita? That's what you've tried to do and that's what I think you've really succeeded at. Making it these short vignettes, was it always going to be like that? I mean, it be, it went through so many reiterations. <laughs> um, I think like so many people's first book, it was going to be something totally different. Yes. But I did become very fixated on short chapter and vignette form. Um, it's so much of what I love reading and so much of what's shaped me, you know, interweaving philosophy, narrative, and it became the best vehicle to tell those delicate stories, as you so kindly said. And what I really wanted as well was, and it, sort of the book touches on that is, you know, it does feel like everyone is so screaming at each other with such certainty and such clearly defined stories about themselves, their identity, their politics. And in that, I just see more indivision being created rather than sort of unity. And it's sometimes when you don't fit into any of those stories, um, it can be very confusing and alienating until learning that there must be and there is space for the unsaid, for the complicated, for the complex, for the for the grey, the in-between. Um, and those are the stories that I find fascinating and wanted to attempt writing myself. Well, not only attempt, you did it beautifully. So this is Friends and Dark Shapes by Kavita Bedford. It's short, sharp observations of emotions, memories, landscape, and the difficulties of being a mature adult or whatever that is. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kavita. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And now it's David's turn. Record now. So a little sign should come up saying we're recording. Oh, yeah. And we will begin. Glaciers are known to give up the bodies of those trapped in the ice long after the individual has disappeared. But in Ali Reynolds' murder mystery, Shiver, we have more than just a cold case. We have psychological intrigue. So, Ali, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. A reunion on a glacier. Your novel begins in a very classic manner, a gathering of friends, but they all have something in common, don't they? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so they are all uh, former snowboarders 
who were training and competing at that tiny French ski resort 10 years earlier until tragedy struck. And so now they've been invited to a reunion in that resort and it's the off season. They gather at the foot of the cable car and as they go up on the long, long ride to the reunion venue on the glacier, they, there's some confusion over who invited them. And then we they reach almost, the Yeah, we, <laughs> sorry. We're almost going back to the Ad Agatha Christie murder mystery uh, sort of and then opening. The Yes, and Agatha Christie's And Then the, the One Nun is one of my absolute favourite books. So this, uh, my novel was very much inspired by that one. I wanted to give it a contemporary setting and see how it might play out on a glacier. Well, we go a lot further than Agatha Christie. We have five characters, Miller, Curtis, Brent, Dale and Heather, and pardon the pun, I don't know whether you did this deliberately, they have an icebreaker exercise to begin with, which goes awry because they find out uh, or there are messages left, I slept with Brent, I slept with Saskia, I know where Saskia is, I killed Saskia. So of those five that are there, there are two people actually missing. Saskia and Odette. Why are Saskia and Odette not there? <laughs> so Saskia has not been seen since 10 years earlier on the morning of the biggest snowboard competition of the year. And she's missing presumed dead. And Odette um, had a terrible accident on that morning and broke her neck and uh, has been told she will never walk again. So there's some suspicion about whether Saskia is actually dead or alive. So that's intriguing. But there's also, shall we put it this way, form between the other five, Miller, Curtis, Brent, Dale and Heather, because they've been quite close to each other 10 years previously. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So they were friends and rivals and lovers in some cases um, in that tiny resort. I think winter sports are quite often like that. It's quite a strange environment for the competitors in that you're often all living and training in very close confines with uh, your closest rivals. And sometimes you're even snowed in with them and yeah, there's, there can be some, yeah, lots of relationships going on. <laughs> now, in this past, because you now have two narratives that run simultaneously, the current present day, where they're working out who's invited them, what they're there for, and who is implicated in Saskia's disappearance. You then have a retelling of the past and that rivalry that took place. And this is where we get into some quite intriguing, if not sociopathic behavior, <laughs> because Saskia, the one, one of the people who's missing, is not a very pleasant person. That's right, she's extremely competitive. 
Um, but then also so is Miller, the main female character. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm very happy to say um, I, I used to be a freestyle snowboarder a long time ago. I'm very happy to say I didn't experience any of this extreme competitiveness in real life. But I'm always fascinated to hear stories of top athletes in other sports. And I think it is actually very, very common. I've heard it said that winning in some sports is as much as 90% a game of the mind where people will do anything to get the psychological edge on their rivals. So I figured I would take some of these mind games and intimidation strategies to an extreme sports environment where the stakes could easily be deadly and explore how far would someone really go to win? Well, Saskia takes that to extremes. Yes. <laughs> Are you prepared to give anything away as to what Saskia does? Um, I think that would be going into spoiler territory. <laughs> right. Let's just put it this yeah. way. Saskia's not a very nice person. <laughs> but it, so it's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's interesting because you pick up on the dynamics between competitors. The dynamics between Brent and Curtis interest me. They're rivals, but there's friendship as well. Curtis is older. He must be 24 or 5, which is getting on a bit for a pro snowboarder. Kids these yeah. days are winning major events as early as 15 years old, and few continue to compete past their late 20s. Soft, young bones don't break so easily. Does Curtis feel threatened by Brent's swift rise? He must do. So you look into the rivalry, but support these competitors give each other. Yes, that's right. I find top athletes really fascinating people. Uh, Curtis's character was based a little bit on the top surfer, Kelly Slater. Um, he's a real sporting idol of mine, but I heard one of his rivals saying about him at interview, he's one of the most competitive people on earth. He plays real mind games. So that just got my imagination really working. And yeah, I hope with Curtis, we never quite know, you know, what he's going to do. <laughs> this goes into a sexual territory, shall we say. I mean, Miller's interested in Curtis. Curtis studies me intently and suddenly I'm thinking about one choice in particular, a choice I made in this very corridor 10 years ago, a choice between pursuing my dream of becoming a pro snowboarder or acting on an, or acting on an attraction that promised to be a major distraction. So, Sexual partners can even prevent you from winning. Yeah, um, I, I think um, it's when you want to reach the top in a sport or in a career that people sometimes do put that first uh, before relationships. I think we often see men do that in our society, but not so often see women do that. So, yeah, I felt it was interesting to explore that with Miller, the main character. She's extremely ambitious. 
And so she's torn between her desire to win and her attraction to Curtis all the way through the book. This plays then on the present day because 10 years later, they have their regrets. They have an understanding of what they did to each other. I don't think it's giving too much away to say that Miller had a fling with Brent, um, even though she was more interested in Curtis. But how do you deal with those things 10 years later when all of these people come together? That's what's intriguing about the present day. Yeah, I think in the present day, Miller likes Curtis a lot, but can she trust him? This is interesting because now in the present day, we see or have an opportunity to see people under tension. And so that attraction between Miller and Curtis takes on more nuance because Curtis can in fact, or exhibits some quite violent tendencies. Yeah, that's right. Um, I hope also that um, Miller and the other female present, Heather, um, they are they are all very strong characters. Uh, Miller particularly is quite physically strong. So I think that all of them there, stranded and on the mountaintop, feel quite threatened of each other and suspicious of each other. And none of them are quite sure what the others are capable of. Uh, they're people that they thought they knew well, but how well do they really know each other? The other element here as well is that Curtis is the brother of Saskia. So he's got a dual role. He wants to protect his sister, but also then uh, he's aware of Saskia's behaviour. And then how does that play when he wants to form a partnership with others? Yeah, that's right. So I tried to give Curtis as much conflict as possible. So he is torn in a lot of directions. He's torn between his best friendship with his closest rival, Brent, and between his attraction to Miller and also his loyalty to his sister. So which one will he put first? <laughs> Another intriguing element is the relationship between Miller and Saskia in the past. They are bitter rivals, but they're also drawn to each other you know, because they, they want to find out what the competitive edge is that the other has. So they, they don't seem to be able to break away from each other. That's right. I think they're very similar and they've got a lot in common. And there's also respect between them because I think in real life, we often don't get, um, we often don't see women being overtly competitive. If they're very competitive, they tend to hide it. But those two women are competitive and they're not ashamed of it. So really, they're quite an equal match. This really raises the question of how healthy competition really is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have an opinion about how healthy competition is? I think in sport, really, anything goes. You know, we have the rules of the sport 
And um, as long as you don't break those rules, anything goes within it. And quite often in sport also, there's a gray area. And I think we, if we look closely at the very top athletes in any sports, um, they will go into that gray area, I think, to, and that's how they reach the top. As it turns out, we find in the present day that Miller, Curtis, Brent, Dale and Heather all have, how shall we put it, uh, an interest in or I'm just looking for the right way of saying this, all could be involved or all have motives. So Miller, Curtis, Brent, Dale and Heather all have a motive, all could be implicated in Saskia's disappearance and we're not even sure if Saskia is actually dead. <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 I liked the idea of the characters being trapped in this building uh, very far from civilization. It's a very long way to get down. The cable car isn't running. And yeah, they are haunted in a way by their memories of her and what they may or may not have done to her. And yeah, feel quite threatened uh, by the suggestion of her presence and her hand in the, the situation they're in. They also feel guilty because they're all implicated and they could have all done something that contributed to Saskia's disappearance. That's right, yes. <laughs> so if the reader actually wants to find out more about who done it, what uh, they did, how they are implicated, and if Saskia is in fact dead or alive, they need to read Ali Reynolds' novel, Shiver, an appropriate title for a book set on a glacier. And it is a Hachette release. So, Ali, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.